So Sam, have you been keeping up with the Jewish internet this week? As per usual, Mr. Zinman. So you saw the radio stories for Lefty Jews website that went up? Yes, I most certainly did. Did you see how they described our podcast? Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it was something to the effect of the preeminent Jewish lefty podcast. Uh, no, they did not use the word preeminent, but they did describe us as the leftist Jewish podcast. Hey, yo. So uh, it's our most positive review yet. Definitely. I, I wish that they went on iTunes and wrote that in uh, <laughs> iTunes. No, but uh, no, that's, it's, that's, that's actually great. And the website is pretty interesting. There's a good list of uh, stories and podcasts and radio shows that are worth listening to. So, David, what's the what's the website again? It's Radio Stories Number Four Lefty Jews Hits the nail right on the head. Uh, so, if you go to the site, you can see other shows that share uh, general leftist politic, and also uh, there's a list of stories from different radio shows that you can listen to as well. Mr. David, did you see the really cool Final Supper type image on the website? Oh, I don't think I understood that it was a reference to The Last Supper. Last Supper, Final Supper. It's Last Supper. All right, let's move on. It's kind of a collage of all these different, what the artist deems as kind of important lefty Jews. Oh, there's, okay, I guess he marks. marks. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, I I think, think Emma. Is that, is that um, Lennon, though? No, I don't think Lennon would qualify. I mean, I don't think so, but that guy looks a lot like Lennon. No, I don't think it, Lennon's on the list. There's Emma Goldman there. Who's this guy? I think that's Theo Bakel. Check it out. If you click on the link, you could actually... Oh, they, they tell you? Click image for more information, David. Oh, yeah. It's not Lennon. So, yeah. Check it out. Uh, Radioforleftyjews.weebly.com. It's the first list we've made it onto, David. So, speaking of being ranked so highly on this Radioforleftyjews.weebly.com list... I am very curious about where you're going with this. This is actually entirely unrelated. <laughs> we actually got some feedback about the tagline for the beginning of our regular episodes. Oh, what have people have been saying? Uh, one person told me that they really liked it and they didn't want us to change it. Oh, I actually heard a couple of people say the same thing. Yeah, uh, and actually no suggestions to the contrary. So are we going to keep it? I don't know. I think we should leave it open. It's like one of those rolling deadline type situations. Okay. I mean, I'm okay with keeping it and maybe we can just change what we say at the beginning of the show. Oh, I still think that we should leave it up to the listeners to suggest other taglines okay and um figure out in a couple more weeks i don't think we have to make any decision here now okay so uh, again if you'd like us to come up with a new funny tagline please let us know hashtag trafe tagline on twitter at trafe tagline no no hashtag i'm kidding i'm kidding so we actually have a great interview today we've been sitting on this interview for a couple of weeks we've had members of jews for racial and economic justice or jfredge on the program before to talk about things like the Jews of color convening, to talk about different kinds of organizing that are happening in New York around this organization. And we spent a couple months trying to get in touch with and sending some back and forth emails with the director or the outgoing director now, Dove Kent. I was really excited about the interview. And then the interview kind of met those expectations. Yeah, it was great to talk with Dove. Uh, we talked a bit about the history of JFredge, how it's changed as an organization over the past five or 10 years, and the struggles of changing and, and why that was necessary to do on an organizational level. And some of the changes and challenges that Dove talks about in, in the interview are linked to the ways in which Jews were organizing and thinking about Judaism and thinking about activism and trying to decenter a certain experience. And it feels timely given the organizing happening now around Black Lives Matter, uh, the mobilizing against the recent police murders of uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. And so we recorded this several weeks ago, but it feels timely 
in terms of uh, organizing and solidarity? Yeah, unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of Jewish organizations that are doing the work on the front lines of the struggle for racial justice. But JFRAGE has consistently been doing that work over the past 25 years, and we're hoping that these conversations can maybe inspire others to engage in similar work in the places that they're living. trying to do this thing where we ask people to introduce themselves. Do you feel okay if we just start off by asking you who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Dove Kent, and I am the executive director of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, based in New York. I mean, folks who listen to the podcast will know about JFredge. I think we're going to use JFredge if that's okay with you. Um, we've been yep. covering your organizing for the last couple of months. But for those who maybe are listening for the first time, could you talk a little bit about what JFredge is up to and what some of the organizing principles are? Absolutely. So JFredge has been around for 25 years. Actually, we are just finishing our 25th anniversary celebration. Um, and so that's really been 25 years of pursuing racial and economic justice by advancing systemic changes that result in concrete improvements in people's daily lives. The main campaign focus areas we have are organizing for police accountability and, again, police abuse. JFRS has actually worked on this issue since Amadou Diallo was murdered in 1999. So it's been many years, um, but in the last Four years, we've really focused a lot of our time and resource and energy um, in a really exciting coalition called Communities United for Police Reform in New York City that's been able to um, pass some really important legislation, and we are working on additional legislation now that is really needed to keep all of our communities truly safe. So that is uh, that's one of the areas that we work in. Um, another area that we've been working in for also many years is the home care industry, which is both justice for domestic workers and also enabling seniors, people with disabilities, to get the care that they need where they are able to live in dignity um, in their homes. So there's a real collaborative campaign that's really integrated around the needs of workers and the needs of those people requiring care to be working together to change the industry rather than being pitted against each other. And then the third campaign area that we're working on is work against Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism. And that has been looking both political education for Jews in New York to be a force against Islamophobia and also support for our Muslim and Arab and Southeast Asian partners in lawsuits against the NYPD, against the city of New York, for surveillance of their communities and other unconstitutional programs uh, that the city and state have around watching and enlisting Muslims and other immigrant communities as well. So those are the kind of three campaign focus areas that we are engaged in. 
And actually, one thing I just want to add to that list was that we also we work on slightly smaller mobilization campaigns. One of the campaigns we're working on is in support of the BNH workers who have been experiencing just miserable working conditions, and they are trying to form a union and facing a lot of retaliation. And so we've been working the last several months in supporting their uh, right to organize. Could you actually talk a little bit more about the B&H organizing? Because I think it's a really interesting thing, particularly who owns uh, the store and the way that J. Fred has chosen to express solidarity and support in the kind of mobilizing with the workers. Sure, sure. So B&H Photo and Video is a store that is owned and managed by Jews in New York. And we were uh, reached out to by the folks that have been organizing with those workers, which is the Laundry Worker Center. They reached out to us to basically ask for support in the campaign, but also to do some learning. I mean, they said, you know, we are not part of the Jewish community. We don't understand the Jewish community. There's a lot culturally that we don't understand about the owners and managers of this store, and we want to be doing effective organizing for better conditions for our workers, and there's a lot that we don't know and understand, and can you all help us to be, you know, really figuring out around campaign strategy and some cultural competencies. So I feel like it's really important to note that because there's a lot of misconceptions about what different communities think or believe about each other or feel about each other. And this was certainly a case where the workers came in saying, we know that there's real real gaps between our communities and we, we want to effectively organize and we want to learn more about the Jewish community to be able to effectively do that. That actually started a series of dialogues that we had with the workers that was really cultural sharing back and forth where we were able to be learning about both the working conditions that they were under, but also we were sharing meals, we were sharing stories, you know, doing just some of that very basic human connection between communities that is the kind of very human-centered organizing that we feel needs to be in the core to our movement work. So through that relationship building and through these dialogues about, about different kind of cultural learning, you know, what they also were really excited to see was that the employment practices that these employers were doing were horrific, not because they're Jews, but because they're horrible employers. And I think that that's something that really happens with anti-Semitism is that when the only engagement that communities have with the Jewish community is with horrible employers, then some of those anti-Semitic tropes and messages that are part of our society can seep in. So once we were able to have those exchanges and they were able to learn more about Jewish community and really recognizing the beautiful, diverse, robustness of Jewishness and Jewish community, it became abundantly clear to them that the practices the employers were engaging in had nothing to do with their Jewish identity and everything to do with capitalism and terrible labor practices. So kind of following that process, we were asking them, you know, how can we as allies be in support of the work that you're doing. How can we how can we leverage the resource in our community and the, the work that we can do as a community organization in support of your campaign? And what we really identified together was that this is a time when there would be a real opportunity to show leadership within the Jewish community and to take a stand as a Jewish community against these abusive labor practices. 
and they were, you know, they were really excited to be learning about more and more and more leaders within the Jewish community who would truly denounce these practices and would come out against the store owners and managers. How long has the politic of solidarity really informed JFRED organizing? Because it seems like a really impressive, commendable structuring principle. And I wonder, at the same time, when this organizing is reaching out to members of the Jewish community and, and the institutional Jewish community particularly, are you framing the language in the way that you're framing it with, like, Trafe Podcast? Or are you talking about this politic of solidarity in a different way? Or maybe how have you navigated that discussion? Yeah, those are all great questions. So a kind of guiding principle of solidarity has definitely been part of JFridge since its beginning in 1990. It was started with a really committed group of Jewish activists, Jews in the labor movement, Jewish leaders, Jewish congregational leaders, rabbis, who were actively involved in many of the pressing social justice issues of the moment, and also very, very concerned about the rightward swing of the Jewish community. <laughs> now I feel like when we look back at where the Jewish community was in 1990, it seems positively left compared to today. But they really saw that there was a gap in the landscape where Jewish organizations were focused entirely on the Jewish community and or were focused on activism around Israel and Palestine, but there wasn't a progressive Jewish voice in New York organizing around some of these most pressing issues of racial and economic justice and in situations where the Jewish community were actors or players in those struggles, but were not actually working in solidarity with the communities most targeted. So they formed JFridge in 1990 to play this role. And for the last 25 years, that has continued to be a guiding principle, articulating where and how the Jewish community can make a strategic and meaningful impact on the issues that are most deeply affecting low-income communities of color in New York. I think that one of the key elements of this, though, is it is a principle based on partnership. We are not coming in simply as a support or help in that sense. We are coming in with a very clear sense that our humanity, our dignity, our conditions of life are deeply impacted by these same structures and systems, and that by being part of campaigns against racism and economic injustice, we are also fighting for our own lives. And that's a really important piece of how we enter into relationships. It's an important piece of how we enter into the work on a daily basis, and it's guided the work for 25 years. Dove, can you talk a bit about how the organization has changed both since its founding, but also in the time that you've been there? You know, 25 years of a community-based organization means that there's been a lot of shifts and changes over that time, you know, the quarter century. And as the movements for racial and economic justice have changed, JFRIDGE has changed along with them. Some of the key pieces that changed were over time, moving from an education and mobilizing strategy 
to an increasing focus on long-term campaigns. So that went from being in partnership for maybe a year or two years on a given campaign to being in partnership for 5, 10, 15 years on a campaign, really seeing it from its start to full implementation. That's one of the shifts that has happened over the 25 years. A shift that has happened over the last five years has really been thinking about who we are as a Jewish organization and as a Jewish community. About four years ago, we looked around and we said, for an organization that's called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, there are basically no Jews of color or foreign working class Jews within the leadership of JFridge and very few within the membership at all. So that's something that the organization had wrestled with and tried to really define a positive future for over the course of the history of the organization. But we felt like we could be positioned to make change. We looked around and we identified that our Grace Paley Organizing Fellowship is really the place in the organization where we invest the most in member leaders. Um, it's a six-month fellowship. There's retreats, there's one-on-one mentorship, there's full days of training, skill development, there's supervision by our organizers as member leaders take on more and more leadership and campaign work. It's really the place that we hone in and support leaders to develop in the directions that they want. So we decided that we would ensure that half of the cohort in that incoming year were Jews of color, Mizrahi Jews, and or poor and working class Jews. And what emerged from that was that the first cohort graduated and some really phenomenal leaders in that cohort, uh, namely Leo Ferguson, who was recently on the show, and Karen Schroen, they decided that they really felt like Jayfridge was their home, um, their, their Jewish community and political home, and that they wanted to build caucuses of Jews of color and Mizrahi Jews to create that community within the larger Jayfridge community. Through the course of that work, Leo Ferguson came on staff both to run the Great Staley Organizing Fellowship and also to organize the Jews of Color Caucus. So he's been leading the Jews of Color Caucus. Karen and another person, Yasmin Safdi, have been leading the Mizrahi Caucus. And over the past few years, they've built these really robust caucuses of leaders in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are more and more identifying Jayfridge as their political home and who are really visioning for the organization what it can mean for them to be in leadership in Jewish community. So through the, the kind of next steps of this process, we did a strategic visioning process in 2014 and 2015. And out of that emerged a kind of coherency to this trajectory that had been moving, where we defined that as in our commitment to grassroots internationalism and to connecting the local and global struggles, that we needed to ensure that the people at the front lines of racial justice, economic justice, within our own community were in leadership at every level of the organization. So we made a commitment for Jews of color, Mizrahi Jews, 
of poor and working class Jews and Jewish youth and Jewish seniors to be in leadership at the board, staff, and member leader level within the course of five years. So that's a super exciting transition that we are in the midst of. And we were really clear that the point was not just to create diversity for diversity's sake, because that's really not about justice at all, but that we know that when Jews of color are in the lead of the Jewish community's work against racism, that there's incredible vision and opportunity there to make change. We know that when Mizrahi Jews are in the lead of the Jewish community's work against anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia and justice for Palestine, that there is extraordinary vision and potential there. So the shift that we are in is a leadership shift, is a constituency shift, but it is also an opening up for the kind of vision that our community has, hasn't seen um, and that we are in need of. So this is the, the shift that we're in while also, you know, simultaneously continuing to define powerful and meaningful contributions for, you know, white Ashkenazi middle class, owning class Jews to be playing in the organization um, because we know that we actually need a multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational, multi-class Jewish community to be able to fight for the world we need. Do you have any idea who chose to give the acronym to JFREDGE? Was it was it a political decision of putting racial before economic or? Uh, yeah, I can certainly speak to that. So the story of that is that um, it was originally going to be called Jews for Racial Justice. And that uh, group of leaders that came together in 1990 wrestled with this and determined that there was really no separation between racial justice and economic justice, and that both needed to be explicitly named as strategies for transformation. So the economic justice piece was very explicitly added into the name, giving us the adorable acronym of JFridge. So in terms of talking about racial justice, can you talk a bit about the analysis that JFredge has around how anti-Semitism interacts with other forms of racial oppression? Sure. This has always been part of JFridge, but in the last few years, we've really honed on this as a need within our larger movement, which is that anti-Semitism is really discussed as a completely different phenomenon from racism, Islamophobia, class oppression these other sources of oppression in our lives. So for us, it's been very necessary to understand anti-Semitism within the wider context of oppression. So we are building analysis internally and with our partner organizations and leaders about how anti-Semitism and racism intersect, about how anti-Semitism and class oppression intersect about the role that anti-Semitism plays within the larger matrix of oppression. So, for example, thinking about the ways in which white Christian Americans are told to blame people of color for using government resources and to blame immigrants while they are instructed to, you know, in various ways to blame Jews for controlling the banks, controlling the money. So there's various different ways in which anti-Semitism 
really works systematically with racism, with class oppression, with sexism, with Islamophobia to create a matrix that keeps those who are truly in power from being targeted. We're also focused on this work because we have seen time and time again in history the ways that anti-Semitism or the threat of anti-Semitism has been used to break apart movements for justice. So whether that is the Russian government putting out the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to break up the socialist movement or McCarthyism and how Jews were directly targeted with very classic anti-Semitic tropes to break up the labor movements here in the U.S. to the ways that the threat of anti-Semitism is used against Palestine solidarity movement today. There's so many ways that we see the right wing use and abuse anti-Semitism against justice movements. And what we're recognizing is the way that we leave ourselves vulnerable to those attacks. But because the social movement left doesn't have an integrated analysis of anti-Semitism in relationship to all other forms of oppression, we leave ourselves vulnerable for the right to control the narrative on anti-Semitism and to break up our movement by using anti-Semitism or the threat of it. And so we really believe that to strengthen, um, we need to have a coherent analysis of anti-Semitism that is integrated with other oppressions that the entire social movement left can use in movement work, whatever that movement is. Part of the reason for us to work on this is for the liberation of Jews alongside the liberation of all people. And it is also to really shore up weak points in the social movement left so that we can be a more powerful force. So it almost felt like a good place to end there, but I have one more question. Um, I think we might be making radio or podcast news by saying that you are stepping down from your position at JFred, yes? That is correct. Uh, Jay Fred just sent a public email, so I don't think that this is uh, hidden information. <laughs> That's correct. Too. Uh, maybe this is like on a bigger level. This is a question about reflecting on your time at Jay Fred, but I'm also curious if you've thought about some of the things that didn't go as well as you would have hoped they went. Mm-hmm. Whether it's inside of the organizing or how Jay Fred related to other groups or the institutional Jewish community. <laughs> It's funny, I'm, um, I've been so focused on uh, a successful position that I, I haven't quite done that backwards looking. You know, as a, as a white Jewish leader, something that I have tried to embrace is modeling relaxed, vulnerable, loving Jewish leadership. And that's in contradiction to a lot of the white leadership that I see and also the Jewish leadership that I see. I think that from the Jewish community, there's a lot of uh, patterns of fear and terror that get laid out in behavior of control. So something that I have tried to counter is that level of control, is that tight fist around the work. And something that I feel like has come in the last five years has been just such exciting vision from the member leadership of JFridge. We're at a place now thinking about those local and global connections, thinking about 
exciting partnerships with organizations around the city and around the world that are really transformative in nature. And it seems, it really feels like the visions for that have come from the staff and from the leaders over the past five years in ways that are just really incredible. And so I feel like part of my job has been to get out of the way as a leader and and be able to make room for those ideas to emerge. So I feel really proud of the collective team, many, many people involved in that team that have been able to shape the organization over these past five years. And now I'm forgetting what the other questions were that you asked. Oh, oh, just what were essentially things that you look back on as uh, things that didn't go the way you hoped they would, or, or, or in retrospect, are mistakes? So I've actually been doing a lot of talk about mistakes lately as part of that commitment to, uh, to vulnerable leadership. Um, I think that there have been times when, how do I put this? A couple of things. One is that we have, we as a community have always had a really big vision, um, and we have not necessarily had the capacity to meet that vision. So we have burned ourselves and each other out um, again and again, supposedly in service of the vision, but really in just a lot of patterns of urgency and. I think that there are a lot of mistakes that we've made over the last five years because we have tried to work all hours. We have worked with a totally unsustainable level of urgency and demand, and that has not ultimately served us. You know, on on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis, it seems like what the work calls for, but I think five years later, um, being able to look at the body of work that we've done, the major wins and gains that we've made have been um, from work that has taken years to grow and to blossom. So there's a whole series of mistakes we could have prevented by slowing down, by recognizing that we need to assess our work in terms of years and decades and not days and weeks. So that's been the source of, I don't know, countless mistakes. Sometimes we've also made mistakes around seeing what we're fighting for too narrowly. And so we will look at what we are fighting for as being really in opposition to what other people are fighting for, sometimes within the Jewish community. And I think that we have not actually opened ourselves up to a bigger vision whereby nobody's needs are in conflict, um, because we know that that's actually true. So I think that we've made a mistake of being too narrowly focused on the immediate conditions of a campaign that we're in and not focused enough on the larger vision whereby no needs of any communities are actually in conflict with each other. Well, Dove, thanks so much for speaking with us. We wish you the best with your time left at JFredge. And I uh, just want to say that from you know two people in Montreal, the work that you're all doing over there is very inspiring to the work that we do here. Well, thanks so much. And um, we love Trace Podcast, so it's really an honor to work with y'all. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much.